Okay, we're picking up with Malachi tonight. We're on page 20. Is it true he was the Italian prophet? Yeah, Malachi. <laughs> Gets pretty close. <laughs> that's, that's a good way to spin the name. Now, we used to have an Italian Baptist preacher. I forget his name, but he's real funny. And he'd make that joke. I've heard him make it about four or five times. It got a little old after a certain point because <laughs> it's coming from the same source. But this this is the first for you, so it's acceptable. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sure you got some other good ones, Ron. Okay, we're looking at the book of starting to look at the book of Malachi. Notice I give you a brief bibliography. Notice I put the S, whatever that is, before Wolf. That's the key source. Notice the title is Malachi. The authorship is by Malachi. On page 21, it looks like the book was written after 516 B.C. So I'd say it's somewhere between 516 and probably at the latest 510. Um, Notice also the structure of the book. Malachi is very, a very neat book because he's got a structure with it. Look at the chart I have here. In each of the segments of Malachi, the prophet will make an assertion. For example, in chapter 1, in the first part of verse 2, notice his assertion or statement I have loved you, says the Lord. Notice the people's question then. But you ask, how have you loved us? And then Malachi gives a response from the Lord. And that goes from, was not Esau Jacob's brother? And it goes down through verse 5. Now what he does throughout the book, with every section, he will have the same pattern. Assertion, the people's question, sometimes a couple questions, then a response. So it's very, very identifiable. Um, So we will be following that format as we look at my notes. As far as the historical background, recall that the Jews had been taken in dispersion to Babylon. Uh, There were five periods of dispersion. Dispersion. 605, 597, and 586 B.C. The big one was 586 B.C. Then they were liberated by the Persians. And there's three major returns. You have with Zerubbabel, 538 B.C., Ezra, 458, and then the third one by Nehemiah, 444 B.C. So they're kind of matching three dispersions, three returns. Now, you need to understand... When the Babylonians took over Israel, the people who were deported, this was not the poor of the land. This was the educated. The reason why it was that way is because the Babylonians would take the upper crust, the educated crust of the society, take them back to Babylon and integrate them with their society. See, that way they felt that they could contribute to their society. 
So it was a scheme that's been done by some others. You know, and in this particular case, uh, oh, what we had what something like fifty thousand. I forget the exact number off the top of my head. It's in my notes, but quite a few people. But the poor of the land were left because they were not as desirable because they did not have the education. Like in all cultures, education is considered something that marks you out. And uh, it's amazing. You know, I can still remember in my early years of college, I got kicked out of college and I was not a Christian and uh, I can still remember my pagan Uncle Harry. He used to always call me Bobby. Bobby, you need to get a college education. I don't have one. He said, the advantage is, is that you'll make more money. And he says, girls like you better when you're dressed in green. <laughs> well, I've got a THD. I'm glad my wife liked me, but I don't think it made much difference. I'm not very rich. <laughs> In fact, I make less than my uh, than the rest of my family. <laughs> so, but it was good because I got to do what I like, and that was a good thing. But see, back there, they were looking to advance their society. That's why they did it. Well. The Persians let them come back, and some of the elite, many of the elite, get to go back to the land. Well, if you notice page 22, I have a chart. It sets forth the chronology of the post-exilic period. The post-exilic period starts when the people return from exile. And that's, you know... 538 to 536 B.C. So that's when it begins. You'll see Cyrus mentions and a number of other kings. And it correlates it with biblical events and scripture references and dates. Now, we don't have time to look at that. Uh, Let's see. Am I correct? Do you not have Bible Institute? Is it next week or the week after that? Okay, the week after that. Okay. That's what I had marked. Uh, we have it the week before Easter. Okay. And I, I believe not the week after, after Easter. Okay. The seminary, they go on vacation starting this Friday. Okay. Right. This Friday? Right. Except I think the high school, they get two weeks vacation. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll tell you why that's like that. The pastor goes to Florida. His family goes to the Lord. <laughs> That's why it was changed. But the seminary was immutable. We weren't going to change it. Well, we want to be politically correct. That's my goal in life. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I don't even attempt that, Bob. <laughs> yeah. I don't either. I really don't care. There's some things I've learned to tone it down on, though. There are a lot of things I have in my background that wasn't healthy. That I toned down. But I think in the main, you know, I'm still, what is it, a homophobe or something? Uh, 
we had other words for it when I was a kid. But you always knew who they were. And they were always the people that got beat up. I mean, I think it's a good thing that people don't beat them up. But, you know, it's still, it's unnatural. So, anyway, I haven't shot away from that. What's that? Yeah, it's not right. I mean, if you can't reproduce, it's not right. I mean, doesn't nature itself teach you? Seriously. So, anyway, I really don't care what the president likes. Uh, but I'll be politically incorrect. I did not vote for him. I did my research. I would have prayed an imprecatory prayer on my right hand if I would have pulled the lever for him. May it be cut off. So, anyway, enough of my political correctness. Let's look at the occasion then on page 23. The occasion is Israel's apathetic attitude towards the temple ritual and the Mosaic law. In short, they had become indifferent to obeying the Mosaic covenant. So the Mosaic covenant is spelled out. Some of it's in Exodus, but the vast majority of it's in the book of Deuteronomy. That was given because it was a setup for when they entered the land. That's why it's the broader one. God's using the prophet to call them back to loyalty to that. So that's, that's the occasion. Also notice the purpose. The major thrust of Malachi's work was to apply the Mosaic Covenant to the post-exilic community of Israelites who had lost their sight of their distinctiveness as God's chosen nation. Consequently, Malachi was often negative because he was reminding Israel of the consequences of disobedience. However, we must temper that against chapter 1, verses 2 to 5. Here, in this section, he will remind Israel of their privileged position. His purpose, simply stated, was to call Judah back to a renewed allegiance to the God of the covenant. That's, that's the purpose in one short, sweet sentence. Now, he's going to fill in the specifics throughout the book, though. So we'll look at these. So we'll pick up with Roman numeral 2, the exposition of Malachi. We looked at the structure of the book. As I point out here in line 2, there were six of those forms that will work its way through the book. These are classified as disputations. Now, we saw that already in Haggai. Remember, the prophet's going to dispute what they were doing and challenge them to return to obedience to the covenant. So he's disputing their disobedience. So here we start with the superscription. We have an oracle. We looked at that in, in Haggai. The word of the Lord, once again, special revelation etc. What we want to pick up on tonight is B, the first disputation. The Lord's covenant love for Israel as demonstrated by his rejection of Esau in chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. 
So we're looking at a display of God's covenant love. And he's going to highlight that by pointing out why he rejected Esau. So that rejection is used to exalt Israel as a privileged nation. That's the point. Uh, Look at page 24. The thrust of this first section is to show that the Lord's rejection of Esau was a demonstration of his covenant love for Israel. Uh, With Malachi's first disputation, he makes an assertion, then that's followed by Israel's question or their objection, and then followed by a response to Israel's objection. Now you can see that, I summarize it, you'll see the assertion, it'll say, says the Lord Almighty. So it follows the assertion. And then the prophet will say, in Israel's shoes, or sandals, I should say, but you ask. And then he'll state their objection, their question. Then there's a response with rhetorical questions and the Lord's oracle. Let's first of all look at the Lord's assertion about his love for Israel. Verse 2a. I have loved you, says the Lord. This is rendered in English. That's called a perfect tense. Now, the significance of that is that means his love began in the past and it continues to the present. Now, sometimes we can use the present tense and that's implied. What I like about this is there's no implication. I have loved you. And it was still current. I have loved you up to this point. So, this expression about God's love, it's it's used 32 times in the Old Testament. The objects of his love are righteous deed, those who pursue righteousness, and are in themselves righteous. The Lord loves those he disciplines and the alien. Abram is called the loved one, the friend of God. And his sanctuary, here presumably Israel. In most passages, his love is directed towards Israel and their predecessors, the patriarchs. Now notice my second paragraph. What we're going to see here is that God's love is unconditional and sovereign. I guess that's my proposition for this unit. God's love is unconditional. That, that is, we don't meet any conditions for God to love us, nor did Israel. And it's sovereign. It's his free choice. So the classic expression of this for the nation of Israel is in Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8. Notice I have this quoted right here in your notes. Notice what this says. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth 
to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he he swore to your forefather that he brought out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why does God love Israel? Because he loves Israel. It was his, it was his, can I say, God has free will. Uh, by the way, it's not human freedom, though, or, or American freedom, because God cannot choose to lie or to sin. To be a true American, you've got to be able to choose the ability to sin. <laughs> and we've got this naive emotion, this naive idea that somehow, unless we can choose good or ill, it's not human freedom. That's from the pit of hell. We choose according to our strongest inclination. Just like God does, except he does it in the context of his deity. He cannot lie. He cannot deceive. We do it in the context of our depraved personality, which is called total depravity, total inability. I did not have the will to choose God. God had to do something to my will. Now, we're going to look at that a little bit more. Um, I'm sorry my wife wasn't feeling well, but my wife is a full Calvinist. She became one about three years ago when we were going through the Gospel of John. So, I mean, I'm fuller than Pastor Ken, I'll say that. (laughs) But anyway, so she's heard this all before. So, in any event... We're going to look at that because God's love, it's the same thing for Israel. And I think that's his primary target here. So let's see what he has to say about Israel. So the point of that passage in Deuteronomy was quite clear. God's love was an act of his sovereign will, and it was not because Israel met any conditions. It was the opposite. It was unconditional electing love. Notice point two, Israel's objection to the Lord's assertion about his love for Israel. But you ask, how have you loved us? When the prophet cites the people saying, how have you loved us? The emphasis is not on the fact of God's love, but they want specific details. Here we are, we're still dominated by the Persians. That doesn't seem like much love. That's more the point. So this question, as Malachi summarizes, is for his disputational purposes. That is, he's disputing the attitude of Judah, an unbelieving attitude. And he's going to tell them why that should not be the case. And that's because of God's electing love. 
So in sinful unbelief, the Yehudites questioned the Lord's covenant love. Let's move on to page 25. By the way, I could read my notes and go just read it word for word. Everything I'm saying is there. I'm just summarizing it. So, but if you read it, you'll see it's there. You're off one page for once, too. I am? Yeah. When you say 25, we're actually on 26. Oh, so number three is 26? Right. I'll have to remember that. How did that happen? That's a good scapegoat. (laughs) That's even better. (laughs) The greatest joy in the Christian life is gossip, talking behind somebody's back. (laughs) But we need to remember 1 John 1 9 here. (laughs) Oh, Ed's a good guy, very good guy. I've known him ever since we moved here. And in May, it'll be 31 years. So. Yep, he, uh, I'm glad he does. That's, I know a number of good people from inner city that are here. Ken? Try to find some for you. (laughs) (laughs) You're still looking. (laughs) Uh, Somebody's been in the service I never want to fool with. (laughs) Well, in any event, we're on page 26. Point a, small letter A, the Lord's explanation of his assertion about his love for Israel. Two facts demonstrate the Lord's love for Israel. Verse 2C, the expression of the Lord's love in his choosing of Jacob. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? The manner in which this question is expressed implies a yes answer. That is, yes, Esau was brother, was Jacob's brother. But how does this answer the preceding question, how he loved us? God is saying that the key to understanding his love for Jacob is demonstrated by the brotherhood of Jacob and Esau. That's very significant. What I do here about six lines down, six, seven lines, I point to a passage in Genesis 25, 21 to 34. Isaac and Rebekah had been married and she was unable to conceive. So as Isaac prays for God to reverse her inability to conceive, in response to Isaac's prayer, God removes his wife's barrenness by enabling her to conceive. During her pregnancy, she has tremendous difficulties because she was carrying twins. Because of the difficulties, Rebecca requires, inquires of the Lord for assistance. The Lord responds in verse 23, and this is the key. I quote it here. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, Jacob and Esau were just minutes apart. However, the way the custom was in the ancient Near East and Israel, the oldest son is the privileged son. He's the one that gets the birthright. He gets the inheritance. 
So, notice here. Can I say there is a role reversal here? Jacob's going to get virtually everything from his family. Now, don't misunderstand. Esau's going to make his way, make his ton of dough, so to speak. But Jacob gets what the firstborn was supposed to get. So that role reversal is what the prophet's hearkening back to. God loved the younger, and he rejected the elder. That's the point. Notice he says, Yet I have loved Jacob. Well, we should note that the verb denotes a perfect aspect, as I mentioned. It is a love that started in the past and still being manifested in Malachi's day. Against the background of Genesis 25, 23, and Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8, we must understand that God's love was freely in sovereign grace and unconditionally bestowed upon Jacob. Can I repeat that again? God's love was freely in sovereign grace and unconditionally bestowed upon Jacob. From the passages in Genesis 25 and Deuteronomy 7, I think we can see four aspects of God's love here. First of all, A, God's love involved the choosing of Jacob over Esau. As we noted in Genesis 25-23, Jacob was chosen over Esau. In Romans 1-8, Paul has been dealing, if we're looking at the context of Romans, with the subject of justification by grace. Through God's justifying grace, Jew and Gentile are made equals in the body of Christ. When one has been made a beneficiary of God's justifying grace, nothing can remove him from that position. If salvation by grace is as certain as God portrays it, what happened to his elect nation? That's the argument that Paul's going to make in Romans 9. So Paul answers this objection by showing how soteriologically, that's another way of saying the doctrine of salvation, salvation things, how salvation by grace is essentially theocentric. It's God-centered. It's not man-centered. In Romans 9, 6, Paul authoritatively asserts that Israel's hardening is not a result of a failure of God's word. This is to say that not everyone in the elect nation is individually elect. Now, I don't think that's the primary point that Malachi is focusing on. But the implications of this, Paul rightly picks up on when it comes to individual election. But right now, he's looking at Israel. Um, Notice how he says when he affirms in Romans 9, 6, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Did you get that? Not all who are of the nation Israel are 
individually elect Israelites. You did not have the remnant. They were individually elect as well as being part of God's covenant nation. But the covenant nation was was not elect to each of them having individual salvation. For the nation, that's true. By the way, that's why we believe in premillennialism. There's a future for Israel. And I understand that because God made these promises unconditionally and sovereignly. And it involves nation. That's why they have a future. By the way, read scripture through and through. You will not see anything said about the United States. We're not an elect nation. But thank God, God has elect people here. But nevertheless, we're not the elect nation. So we don't have a future. Israel does. So I've got my money bet on Israel. Things don't look good now. The world is aligned against them. I would not be surprised. God could have another dispersion. They have no guarantee that they're going to stay in the land. And the way the Arab nations are lined up against them, I don't think it looks very good. Fortunately, the Jewish nation, they have some smart people there. So man for man, they are probably the military might of the world, but it's small. And they've got military technology that is amazing. Like the way they protect themselves there. You know, I was in Israel in 2000. And there was a potential bomb threat. They shut down the whole cotton-picking freeway. And we sat there for over three hours until they figured out what was going on. That's why the security is so tight at the airports. Well... I think they could rise to the occasion, but I mean, you got everybody against now. So my faith will not be disillusioned if they have another dispersion. God doesn't guarantee it's this one. I hope it is. They stay. But I'm not going to be, my faith will not be shipwrecked if they are overtaken and dispersed again. But let me bet the farm. In the end, they will be gathered together again and they will occupy the primary place in the millennial kingdom. So, I take this back all the way to Deuteronomy 7. That's the foundation for premillennialism. Well, let's say more, but Malachi is not the place for eschatological gurus. So, Paul's programmatic statement in verse 6 is further developed in verses 7 to 9 by marshalling biblical evidence to show that not all of Abram's descendants are children of promise. He continues his thought further by showing that God's electing purpose discriminated between Jacob and Esau in verses 10 to 13. I've got the text right here in my notes. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father. Our father, Isaac. 
yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it's written. Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. So, notice here. God's pretty clear here. He, uh, he has his electing purposes with the nation Israel. And he's going to use that to illustrate his individual election. So, but to prove his point in verses 10 to 13, Paul had merged Genesis 25, 23 and Malachi 1, 2 to 3. Based upon God's electing purposes, Paul's teaching that God's salvation is an absolute certainty. God's electing purposes are certainly affirmed by Jacob and Esau. So, let me notice the second point here. We saw that God's love involved the choosing of Jacob over Esau. But notice, God's love for Jacob was unconditional. Now, I've already met, mentioned this, so we won't park on that. But, in, according to Paul, God chose Jacob before he was born, before either he or Esau had done anything good or bad. So Paul maintains in Romans 9, 12, it's not by works, but him who calls. Notice, see, God's love for Jacob was also a choice reflecting God's sovereignty. There was nothing in Jacob that caused God to choose him. Absolutely nothing. Notice D, God's love for Jacob finally reflects God's freedom. Now, I've already mentioned a little bit about the nature of freedom. Let me just summarize what I'm saying. The only person with absolute freedom is God. However, God's freedom is not American freedom. God is bound by his person and his plan. That is, God can never tell a little white lie. Because if he do that, he would be denying his person. So God can act out whatever he purposes. Now for you and I, we, uh, before we became Christians, we acted according to the craziness of our heart, the total depravity. I chose that which was good for Bob McCabe. And I would do it whatever way I could. I don't think you were any different. But notice, that included for me, you know, I was a kleptomaniac starting grade school. I had a business. I was an entrepreneur. We'd trade stuff with, people, with kids in school from other sections of the town. But my entrepreneurship was flawed. It was based upon robbery. Well, I was acting out what was consistent with my total depravity. I could not choose God. It wasn't until I was actually saved in college where I knew the gospel. My dad had been a Christian. My mother became a Christian three years before she died. But they met in a bar. When we were kids, we saw about everything. 
But in God's sovereign grace, he reached down and saved my dad when he was early the mid-30s. I did not understand the change that came over. We actually had to go to church. We actually had to tithe. We were Presbyterians. They believed in it real strongly. <laughs> and uh, we used to ski every Sunday. We couldn't go skiing anymore on Sunday. I'll tell you, my worldview was broken apart. But it was a worldview that I'd like to be in. I loved skiing when I was a kid. Sunday was my dad's only free day because he was an engineer, but he also did surveying. And it was on Saturdays, and I'd have to help him. So we lost our, time, our day for the good times. But I saw something that I just did not understand. Now, I was able, when I was a sophomore in college, to embrace the same Christ. But it was because, see, I knew everything about the gospel. I'd heard it. For some reason, on a cold February morning, after guys had witnessed to me for about four to five hours, I wanted Christ. I say, that's what I call regeneration. He quickened me so that I did repent and believe. By the way, I was the one who did the repenting and believing. But I was able to do that because I'd been quickened. Now, in following Paul's analogy, or what I'm saying about depravity, at the point of regeneration, I could choose something that was pleasing in God's sight, something that was good. But it was only because of regeneration. See, at that point, the inclinations of my heart were changed. Where before that, they were only wicked. Not every thought was wicked, but I mean, it was all for my self-preservation, my self-worth, things to avoid the wrath of my parents and all that good stuff. But I was sneaky. I mean, I started young, second grade. Uh, so and some of you probably beat me. <laughs> but nevertheless, I was choosing evil. Even if it seemed to be okay. I turned over new trees on New Year's. Notice I didn't say new leaf, a new tree. But they never worked. I didn't have the ability. But with regeneration, we now have the ability to please God. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. Well, see, our nature's been changed. Now, it's not completely changed because we still sin. But nevertheless, I can't think thoughts that are pleasing to God. I could not before that. So my point is, is the definition of human freedom, being able to choose good or evil, that's craziness. Moral agents choose according to the inclinations of their heart. God always chooses right because he's God. You and I still struggle with our sin nature the flesh, because we have not been perfected, glorified yet. But we're unlike God in that regard. But someday, it will be better. But for now, 
We have to struggle with the flesh. So that's where we're different from God. So we don't absolutely choose that which is good, that which is right all the time. Now, some things we do. Serving Christ, you know, representing him, presenting the gospel. These are good and noteworthy. But if I do that, because I'm trying to see how many people I could lead to Christ in one year and compare it with my friends, that's also from the pit. I mean, it's about the ego. I mean, how many, how I beat my friend. So, so we still have the flesh. That's where we're radically different from God. However, we got the right start with regeneration. And the older we get in the faith, often the more we improve. However, I'm here to tell you, I'm going to be 65 this, this month. Not everything I think is what it should be. I've got a wife who can crack me upside the head. She doesn't do that, but I know she's thinking it. <laughs> so, I can do some things that I just love getting my wife's goat. She doesn't think that's good and right. <laughs> and I told her, that's fine, you can be wrong. Well, I think you understand what I mean. The only person with true freedom is God. Us, we have greater freedom. So, going back to my point, God's love for Jacob finally reflects God's true freedom. But notice on page 27, Notice the expression of the Lord's love in his rejection of Esau. But Esau I have hated. When hate is used of God, it does not denote the same emotional nuance that it does for man. When I say I hate you, it may drip with all the remaining wickedness in my heart. God's hatred's not like that. Uh, some such as Walter Kaiser says hate means love less. But friends, if the background goes back to Genesis 25 and Deuteronomy 7, that cannot be the case. God's hatred means he hates, he rejects. That's what it means. So he rejects Esau. Now, what will happen is uh, Esau's descendant, Edom, they're going to go on, and in the process of time, Nebuchadnezzar is going to defeat Moab and Ammon. Some will live on, but as as a nation. It's going to go, at this point, at least belly up in in the near future. Well, God's hatred of Esau indicates that the Edomites did not experience the blessings of God's covenant law. Does Malachi 1, 2-3 have any bearing on Jacob and Esau's eternal destinies? It does appear to me that Malachi is not explicitly teaching anything about either Jacob or Esau's eternal destinies. He's looking at them as individuals and their future prospects with their descendants. 
The same is also true in Genesis 25. The point in each passage appears to be concerning each individual and their future of each individual's posterity. However, as we have previously seen in the context of Romans 9, 10 to 13, Paul fleshes out the strong implications of the passage that does deal with individual eternal destinies of Jacob and Esau. Though Genesis 25 and Malachi 1 relate to each son and the future descendants, we can say that the foundation for Paul's teaching is found by the implications in these two passages when interpreted in light of God's overall progressive revelation. Paul was explaining a principle that ties these concepts together. John Piper did his doctoral dissertation on the justification of God in Romans 9. That dissertation was turned into book form, The Justification of God. I've read it. It's a great book. In particular, let me quote him from page 48, a very important quotation here. Paul's main goal in Romans 9, 6b-13 was not to prove that God freely elected the nation of Israel, but rather his goal was to establish a principle. Notice the word principle. By which he could explain how individual Israelites were cursed, and yet the word of God had not fallen. What Romans 9, 6b proves is that in Paul's mind, the election of Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau established, and notice this, an ongoing principle whereby God elects beneficiaries of his blessings, not only in the establishment of the nation Israel by Jacob and his sons, but also in that very nation so that all those from Israel, these are not Israel. Since the unconditional election of Israelites from within Israel, physical, to be true, there's a spiritual Israel, that is, those who are individually elect, cannot be construed as an election to to theocratic principles or privileges. And since the immediately preceding distinction made between some Israelites and others was was that some are cursed and cut off from Christ. Therefore, we must conclude that Paul views the purpose of God according to election as a purpose to be free from human influence, not only in the determination of the historical roles, but also in the determination of who was within Israel are saved and who are not. Paul's point, Romans 9, 6, not all Israel is Israel. That is, not all those in the theocratic nation are the true regenerate Israel. That's the point. So God's word has not failed with Israel. He never said he elected the nation to eternal salvation. Never says that once. But he does say, He elected them for special theocratic purposes. And that will be picked up in the millennium. But for us, we're Gentiles. 
there's a sense, I thank God for the disobedience of Israel. If they had not been disobedient, we would not be having this study tonight. The church would not be here. So, I mean, do I revel in that? No, I mean, you hate to see it. But there's one sense, I am happy. Because Gentiles could be grafted in. And for that, I am thankful. But I will rejoice in the day at the end of the tribulation when all Israel, those who are there, find out about their individual election. That's when Israel will be the elect individuals of Israel. But not till then. Well, that's quite a quote by the Apostle John. (laughs) I say that tongue in cheek. Piper's not a cessationist. I'm a cessationist. Well, look at the Lord's expansion of his explanation in verses 4 to 5. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. That's verse 4. So notice here. They're called the wicked land. But did you also notice what he describes in further? Notice he says, they're people always under the wrath of the Lord. Now that's quite a curse. By the way, can I point out, you and I were under the curse. God hated us when we were in Adam. We were rejected. If it had not been for God's electing purposes, placing us in Christ, uh, we would not know the benefits of eternal salvation. It was because of his electing purposes. So it was free. But I think we soft pedal it if we say that God just simply loves unbelievers less. I'll tell you, all unbelievers are in Adam. And because of that, they're condemned. That's another way of saying God hates. It's only because of being in Christ that we were elected. And that puts us in Christ. So everybody's in Adam, but only his elect people are in Christ. And we are in Christ. We have not been left in Adam. Thank God. So, profound things. Now, let me emphasize a few things here about God's hatred for Esau. God's hatred of Esau in Malachi 1.3 means that God worked in such a way that his family's property became a wasteland. In verse 4a, God's hatred of Esau means that he would continue to oppose them as the Edomites resisted his judgment. Notice in 4b, God's hatred of Esau also means God's judgment would run a course that his descendants and their property would be called in such a way that the descendants and property would be called the wicked land a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Esau begat 
children in his likeness. And they deservedly became known as the wicked land, the people always under the wrath of the Lord. They deserved that. In 4C, God's hatred of Esau means that he and his posterity are under God's wrath. They are under state of condemnation. They are hated by God. And as such are a people always under the wrath of the Lord. As we compare Edom's condemnation under the wrath of God with Genesis 25, 23 and Romans 9, 10 to 13, we should soberly, I choose that adverb uh, purposely, we should soberly observe that God chose to bless Jacob and to pass over Esau. Before their birth, both Jacob and Esau were already in Adam. As such, they were both in a state of condemnation. God passing over Esau was a divine choice to leave Esau in his sin and to let him obtain what he deserved. God not, did not have to exert any divine energy to make Esau wicked. For Esau was already that way in Adam. The result of God withholding his electing love from Esau was that he ran his course of wickedness and got what he deserved. All God did was to leave Esau as well as his descendants on their own. Esau and his posterity were under God's wrath. You may say, friends, the same would be for us. God would have been perfectly just to leave us in Adam. Uh, Our condemnation would be valid justice and God would have been glorified in it. But God in grace put us in Christ and being in Christ, he regenerated us and we repented and believed. He continues working salvifically in us through the saving work of the Spirit that we call the indwelling ministry of the Spirit. So tonight, as we ponder this, may I suggest to you that uh, we really should thank God for sovereign grace in our life? Nothing we did justified our salvation. When God looked at me, if he hypothetically looked down the corridors of time, and I don't think he did that, I think he ordained time in his corridors but if he did what would he have seen I was one of those none have done anything right all sinned all fall short of the glory of God that's what he would have seen but friends God doesn't do that that's the Arminian perspective and by the way that's the man centered approach maybe that's a better way to state it It's the man-centered approach. Somehow there was something that lay within us that would cause us to believe. Uh, Every Arminian I know denies that. But I think when it's all said and done, that's the way it's got to be. You know, one year I went whitewater rafting, 2008, and it was down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. Uh, 2008, and uh, 
there were about 20, 25 of us from various backgrounds. But I made friend with an individual who teaches at God's Bible College. It is an Armenian Bible College. Well, on the trip, uh, I, I had a good friend, Ting Wong. He was a Hebrew teacher at the time at Stanford. But he had his MDiv from uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. A strong Calvinist like myself. And so we're talking about God's grace and this friend of ours interrupts. And he says, that's ungodly thoughts. Now, I'm probably making it sound a little bit worse. He said, those aren't right thoughts. I think he really meant ungodly thoughts. And he started to defend Arminianism. Well, Ting and I, we were Tang team match. And, uh, you know, he still never conceded the point. Well, about five years ago at ETS, I needed a roommate to cut down the cost. So this Armenian and I, we hooked up. And there was a motion on the floor that related to whether uh, there was whether total depravity damn people. And you get two minutes to rebut or affirm. He gets up and rebuts it. He said, no children, go to hell. Unfortunately, that night, we talked. Now, we didn't argue because, you know, I'm not going to argue with somebody. But I had to listen to those arguments. And I'd give him a biblical response. But he had circumlocution. So I put up with that. And I finally said, you know, Mark, the Bible just jumped out and bit you. You're not going to believe it on this point. I'm going to bed. <laughs> but I was diplomatic. We're still friends. But we don't talk about Calvinism anymore. <laughs> well, anyway, that's, I mean, people are opposed to that. But I think if we're going to be right Bible interpreters, we have to embrace it. Paul was clear. John is clear. So, what else can I say? Well, this is a good place to start. We'll pick up next week with point C on page 29. Uh, we'll probably end up spending a little bit more time on Malachi 2, 10 to 16. If you notice, I've got more extended notes because that is a major cultural phenomenon. But I'll tell you here tonight, I have not changed my view on it. Okay, well, we'll see you all next week.